Amen. Let us pray now that God would illuminate uh, the scriptures we are about to hear. Let the good news come now, O God, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. So uh, you have a you have a, a page like this in your a program uh, that may be helpful or it may just be confusing. So I'll let you uh, make the decisions yourself about how to, how to use it. Um, uh, it's just going to confuse me, so I'm going to set it there. Um, I've got one with the answers on it. So, um, so uh, people who become Christians uh, are sometimes uh, expecting. That, you know, if I become a follower of Christ, uh, something better will happen. Um, most, most obviously are people who are trying to overcome some kind of an addiction that they, they believe if I get into the program and I surround myself with other believers, then the higher power, Christ, G- Jesus, uh, God will bless my life, help me to overcome my addiction. Um, that's, that's a common uh, pattern we see. Uh, sometimes people say, it's nothing, nothing right now I'm worried about except I have a fear of my own mortality. And so if I become a Christian, then I will have a solution for that problem. That people often expect that their lives will get better because they have become a Christian. And there's good news, that is true. That is a promise that Christianity makes. And the reason is because what God's intention for us is uh, not simply to to come to a building like this and hear things in the Bible, not simply to engage in rituals, however fulfilling they may be, but actually to transform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. We read in Romans and in Corinthians and other places in the New Testament that that is God's intention, that that uh, Jesus is the model for us, and not only the model, he is actually the goal that God is moving us toward. So, So I think most of us would agree that I would be a better person. I know I would be a better person. I suspect you would too, um, if you were like Jesus. And so that's that's the place God is heading us to. And so we will be better people as we become more and more like Jesus. And that's why uh, our mission as a church is to help people trust Jesus for a better life. Is that is that as they trust Jesus, as they become more like Jesus, they will have a better life. So nothing there, I hope, is very controversial, but. I didn't say easier. It is often, it is regularly a harder life. And the reason for that is because, because discipleship is hard. I mean, the very word disciple means you're studying something. It means this doesn't come naturally to me. It's not like I just wake up every morning and immediately do these things because I'm so good at them. It's something where it's like, I would like to be better at this. I, I think that there is something that I could do better. And so I'm trying to be a disciple of Jesus so that I can do these things better. So so discipleship is harder um, in, in that way, but it's often harder in ways that, that are more visible to us. If you think of if you think of the famous the famous disciples uh, down through the ages, you know, the the early Christian martyrs, they're offered the choice of recanting their Christian faith or going into the arena to face wild beasts and they say, I'll take the arena. That's a hard that's a hard act of discipleship. Um, in our own era, people like Corey Tinboom, who, uh, with her family, uh, sheltered Jews from the Nazis and the Holocaust, that's hard discipleship, and it cost her and her family dearly to do so. 
Um, or a century earlier than that, if you think of somebody like uh, William Wilberforce, he devoted his life, 45 years he devoted to ending the slave trade, uh, first first slavery itself, and then the, tra- the transatlantic slave trade. He spent 45 years getting those two acts through Parliament and died three days after the, the transatlantic slave trade had been outlawed by Britain. So people who devote their entire lives, they say, my act of discipleship is hard and it's going to, to be hard. And uh, that's, that's the, the famous examples we can think of. We can think of people whose discipleship was very hard. But I think the usual case is something where only the disciple knows how hard it is. Only the person wearing the shoe knows where it pinches. And so my guess is that you know what I'm talking about. It's the thing that popped into your mind when I said discipleship is hard. It's the place where you're personally struggling. Some people struggle with an addiction, that, that they, they find that it's so difficult to resist the urge to do something that they don't know if they can possibly overcome that, that, that or even resist it for an hour. Other people say, no, no, that's not my particular problem, but I do have a temptation. I have a temptation to um, express my sexuality through an affair or through some other kind of illicit behavior, and and so that's the temptation I'm dealing with. Other people say, no, for me, the temptation I have is honestly to trust in money more than God. And so I find myself tempted to engage in shady or corrupt uh, business practices uh, to to um, resist this. You know, my, my brother-in-law, he, he needs a loan, and part of me is saying I should just loan it to him, and the other part of me says, no, I need the money more than he does. And so I'm resisting that, that, that inward call to be more charitable. And so all of us have different, different ways where our discipleship is hard, and uh, nobody sitting next to you can necessarily understand what that is. And so what we're going to talk about today is the general problem of what do we do when discipleship is hard. Uh, what, what are we going to do when, um, when discipleship is hard? And uh, the, w- the way we're going to look at that is through the letter of Jude. It's called the Book of Jude. It's actually a letter. Um, we've seen that uh, the last couple of weeks that a lot of the, the shorter books in the, the New Testament are actually letters, uh, just letters from the uh, first century. And uh, this, is, this is like that. It's, uh, it's the, the reason we're doing the whole series is because there's a number of these that are so short, they're only one chapter long. Um, in this case, the chapter is pretty long, so it's on both sides of, of the uh, program, but, but we're going to get through it anyhow. So what is Jude? Jude is a letter, and we don't know much about it. It's it's part of the apostolic tradition that was handed down to us through the early church. Um, so that tells us that the early church believed it was written by an apostle, Jude. And so there's different candidates. There's a couple of people in the, the New Testament named Jude. The one we're sure it's not is Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. He was one of them. This is not his letter. Um, but among the other Jude, different Judes, there's different theories. So... So, um, which Jude is it? We don't know, and we certainly don't know anything about the church that he addressed it to. As we'll see, uh, it has a lot in common with our church because it has people in it who are dealing with a, a temptation to to not uh, uh, lean into their discipleship. So, so that's about all we know. But it's it's a hard it's a hard it's a hard letter. Um, I mentioned last week uh, in, in one of the the technical uh, commentaries I was I was reading to prepare this message. I saw the line. Uh, somebody had said it is the most neglected book in the New Testament, 
And I don't know how they compare. You know, <laughs> I, I can think of some other neglected books too. Uh, but but uh, I can understand why it would why it would be the most neglected book. First of all, it's a it's a hard topic, right? The danger of reading a book that says, you know, here's what you do when your discipleship is hard, is it may say, and it's going to go on being hard, right? You know, who wants to hear that message, right? But but the other reasons that it's hard is because it's filled with these obscure. Uh, references to to things we don't uh, understand. It's got a number, you know, it's just 25 verses, but there's six references to the uh, Hebrew scriptures, and then there's some other references that are to uh, first century documents that appeared to be in circulation at the time. So it's it's obscure. But then on top of that, it's got a pretty strong tone. You know, if you if you had a chance before the the service to kind of skim through it, you saw here's a guy who's kind of you know, you know, he's kind of a Bible thumper, and and he's he's you know you know. You know, my way or the highway. He's really kind of strong language. It seems a little harsh. It seems a little judgmental. People talking about fire and judgment. It's hard to, it's hard to get excited about reading that book. So we can understand why it is neglected. Now, before we go into it, I want to say this. I want to say, look, it's not my job to defend the, the New Testament. The New Testament is what it is. And if you don't like it, you know, all you can do is take a scissors to it, like uh, you know some some people famously have in history. So you you can you can cut out the parts you don't like, or you can accept it. So I'm not going to try to defend it, but I will I will offer this a uh, bit of explanation that that as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself of a different letter. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity. I think everybody should take the time to read the letter uh, from Birmingham City Jail by Martin Luther King. It is. Um, it's a short letter. It's not as short as Jude, but it's uh, 13 pages in this printing, and you know you can find it online and so forth. Letter from Birmingham City Jail. And unlike so much of what Dr. King um, uh, wrote and said, this was not aimed at the general public. It was not aimed to, to the wider American audience. It was aimed specifically to the Christian church. So unlike so much of what he wrote, uh, this is aimed at us. And so Dr. King was writing to us, and he wrote it from jail, and it is a remarkable document because it just um, it just is filled with uh, references. There's one page in here, pardon me, one paragraph. In one paragraph, he cites... Um, he cites St. Augustine, he cites St. Thomas Aquinas, he cites a, a, a Jewish theologian named Martin Buber, and he cites the Christian theologian Paul Tillich. So that's in one paragraph. A couple of pages later, he cites in one paragraph, he cites um, the uh, uh, he cites Jesus, he cites Amos, uh, he cites uh, the Apostle Paul, he cites the Protestant ref- uh, reformer Martin Luther, and he uh, cites uh, the uh, English uh, Puritan John Bunyan. And then he tops that all off by citing Abraham Lincoln. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's remarkable that he could do that in jail. You know, he's not in his pastor's library, right? He's in jail, and he writes this amazing document, and I certainly commit it to you all. But the reason he did that is because the the matter was urgent. And he said, white Christians should be on the side of black Christians, that really they should be on the side of black people everywhere. And that's the, the point he's making. This is an urgent matter, and that's why his tone is so strong. Uh, but... It's also why he's filling it full of these references, because he's saying, this is so important, I'm just going to fire a shotgun at people, and hopefully something 
will connect with them. That, that one of, you know, if they don't like Martin Buber, maybe they'll like Abraham Lincoln or something. Somehow or another, this will speak to them. And I think that's what Jude is doing in this letter. The reason it's so filled with obscure, obscure, uh, references and the reason that, that it has this strident tone is because the matter is urgent. So hopefully that makes it a little less difficult to digest. So we're gonna, we're gonna try and unpack a little bit the, um, the difficult, uh, parts, but we don't have time to do to do uh, them all justice. So, um, so we're going to be looking at it. And um, let me see, where are we? <laughs> the slides—they have a great opportunity to confuse us. So, becoming Christ-like, Jude. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started now on the letter of Jude. So, uh, the letter is—it um, uh, begins. This letter here. A minute. I got new glasses, so I have to decide: can I see that or? something closer. So, all right. The letters from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So we already talked about the issue. Writing to everyone. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father. Any Christian, uh, this letter is aimed at you. And he says, may God give you more and more peace, mercy, uh, mercy, peace, and love. So that's a kind of standard opening, opening. We've seen that the last couple of weeks as we looked at second and third John. But the next thing he does is he plunges into the letter. And if we uh, were here the last couple of weeks, if you weren't, you can listen online. But we saw that in the first century, there's something that belongs next in a letter, and it's the table of contents. It's the Thanksgiving. I thank God for these things I'm now going to talk to you about. And he doesn't have that. And again, that's another sign. This is an urgent letter that he's he's plunging right in without going through the, the formalities. So, so he gets straight into it. And what does he say? He says, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. So that's what he wants to do. He wants to urge us to defend the faith. So how do we defend the faith? What does that even look like? And he says, he says, I'll, I'll get to that, but first, why am I doing it? He says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. So that's what he's talking about. And uh, what specifically was the concern that he was dealing with, we don't know, but we know this problem because we still have it today. Um, you, you probably know people, maybe you've been this person, where you say, look, now wait a minute, do I have this right? Jesus Jesus has paid for all my sins, that I'm, I'm in with God no matter what I've done, past, present, and future? Yes. So I can just sin all I want? And the Christian answer is, no, you can't. But, but... A lot of people say, well, wait a minute, but if that's true, and it includes future sins, then why shouldn't I just go on sinning? Because, you know, yes, it's true. I would like to deal with the alcoholism, but I would also like to be able to drink. You know, I, I, you know I'd like to be able to have affairs or whatever. That basically, we tend to say, here's a problem I'm dealing with, and and... I would like God's help with that. And maybe it's, you know, a fear of judgment when I die. Maybe it's something more, more immediate. But, but I'd like God's help with that. But, you know, I've got a whole bunch of my life that you know, I'm perfectly fine with all this. And, and I don't need God's help. And I frankly don't want his interference. And so this is the, the, the situation that was happening in the first century. We see it in some of Paul's letters. And it was obviously the situation that, um, that Jude was dealing with. And, um, so, uh, so, so he's saying there are these immoral people who are saying, yes, that's, that's the, that's the plan. You just do whatever you want, whatever you, whatever works. And he says, he says that's not true. He says the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they've denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
And then he plunges into the first of one of these kind of uh, scattershot. Uh, hopefully one of these illustrations will connect with you. And so he says, I want to remind you that although uh, though you already know these things, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, um, uh, some of them are pretty obscure. Uh, Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. He's talking about the Exodus, that God, um, through the prophet, working through Moses, uh, delivers the people out of captivity into uh uh, supposedly into the wilderness, I mean, into the promised land, but they stopped. They, they chickened out. They said, we don't want to go in. It's, it's scary. So God said, okay, you can just wander around in circles in the wilderness for the next 40 years until you all die. And during that 40 years, there were periodically people who would say, you know, I don't like Moses. I don't like what we're eating today. They, for various reasons, people would say, I don't like my current situation. And when that happened, he says, he reminds them that God destroyed them. God saved them, yes. But God still can destroy them because they are not on God's side, that they are rejecting God's salvation. He says, I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place that they had belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Nobody knows exactly what that is. It seems to be referring to Genesis 6. There's a story about the Nephilim, and it's probably starting there, but... We don't know exactly what he's getting at. It probably uh, something that was current in the first century, some kind of interpretation. Um, if you think, if you think, um, uh, you know, in my sermons, I might cite Martin Buber or Abraham Lincoln or something like that, but it doesn't mean that they have the authority of Scripture. So, so whatever this is, he's citing it and saying, you know, that example. We're all familiar with that example, and unfortunately, we aren't. And he goes on, he says, don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. These cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. He's saying God specifically uh, intended to save people. He saved Lot from from the destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is free to destroy the people who reject his salvation. So he's saying "This is this is an old thing. We all know about that. So um, that leads us to our first point, which is this. Jesus, remember, remember that Jesus saved sinners, not sin itself. That God rejects sin, and God will always reject sin. We see that in the... Um, in the book of Revelation, uh, speaking of the age to come, the, the visionary, uh, John writes this. He says, we will wipe, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things are passed away. He says, all the sor- all the, the downstream effects of sin, the, the crying, the mourning, all the things that we hope will not be part of the age to come will not be. And for that to be the case, Sin and death will have to be destroyed as well. So God will destroy all the causes of mourning and crying, and the former things will have passed away. So this is there is no future in sin. So he says he cites uh, Paul. This is uh, Paul was dealing with the same problem in Corinth. He he says, uh, "You say you the people in Corinth say." But, hey, I'm allowed to do anything, right? Jesus has forgiven me, right? I'm allowed to do any, anything. And he says, yes, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. And again, we know this, right? We know people, maybe we are people, who say, look, I will stop that. I agree, it's not a good habit, but it's just kind of generally not too bad. And I can stop anytime I want. I just don't want to today. <laughs> And if you ask me tomorrow, I guess I'll probably say the same thing then too. Because, because in fact I am a slave to something. And Paul says, don't become a slave 
to anything. So yes, you are free to do anything, but you must not become a slave to it. And so Paul concludes that passage. He says, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Paul was talking about uh, in the first century, uh, people who got, got into debt, they would sell themselves into slavery. They'd become like an indentured servant. And then they did not own their own labor. It was, it was owned by somebody else. And he's saying, he's saying, Jesus purchased you from sin. And so don't go back and work for sin anymore. You don't work for sin anymore. You work for Jesus. So he says, don't do that. Um, uh, so uh, remember remember what Jesus attempted uh, to, to do, what Jesus actually did do, which is to rescue sinners, not, not sin itself. So that's the first point. And then we pick it up again in verse 8. So he says, in the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams, live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. I'll come back to that. He says, But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about uh, Moses' body. Um, And... uh, Again, this is an, uh, an obscure reference. We don't know exactly what he's getting at. Uh, one of the phrases appears in the um, uh, book, book of Zechariah, I think. But uh, the, the whole passage, uh, the, this whole little uh, incident he's citing doesn't appear in the Hebrew Scripture, so we don't know exactly what he was getting at. But the point is clear. He's saying that Michael, who is described as an archangel, he's, he's one of the top, you know, on you know the, whatever the hierarchy of angels is, Michael's right up at the top, but he doesn't, he doesn't condemn even Satan. He doesn't condemn anyone, even Satan. He says, condemnation is not my job. I am an angel. I'm a messenger. I do the things that God tells me to do. But judgment is God's problem. I don't do judgment. He says, even for Satan, I don't judge anybody. So that's the point he's making. He's saying, he's saying that there are people who have decided that they are their best judges. And that get, brings us back. So, so now with that, we understand better what he's getting at in the first part. He's saying, these people claim authority from their dreams. They're saying, look, I reject your, your system of ethics. I reject the Bible, all that old stuff from 2,000 years ago. Who pays any attention to that? That's not modern. We know so much more now. Our science is better and, and we understand human, human, um, uh, uh, we, we understand we understand uh, our psychology and our makeup better than they did back in those olden days. So I reject I reject all your your authority. And you say you say well, even if it's got God's you know fingerprints on it, even if even if it's got God's God's uh, 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 warranty, uh, you still reject it. And they say yes, I reject it because because I've got my own theories about what is the best. Um, the best system of ethics. And, and really, that's what our society mostly does today. Most people are kind of cut loose, good luck figuring it out. Um, you know, you're going to have to make your own way. You're going to have to figure out your own system of ethics. And, you know, the wreckage is going to be bad, but maybe in 50 or, or 70 years, you will have figured out enough and you'll be able to get through your life without, without the catastrophes alongside you. And that's what, what uh, Jude is saying. He's saying, he's saying, really, if they're going to reject this system of ethics, then ask them, Ask them how's their system working out. Ask them who stands behind it. Ask them who is the warrantor of their system of ethics. Because God stands behind God's ethics. And who is standing behind theirs? So the second point, compare the warranties. Who's, who's standing behind their system of ethics? And by the way, how's that working out for them? You know, he, he says, 
He says, look at them. These people scoff at things they don't understand. They're saying, well, you know, I don't understand all that Bible stuff. Um, besides, I heard on the Today Show, there was a guy who was saying that this is better, and so I'm going to do that. Um, and he says, like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. So they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? They follow in the footsteps of Cain. Again, these are Old Testament references. Cain, who killed his brother. Balaam, they deceive people for money. And Korah, they perish in their rebellion. And again, we don't have to dig into those. The point he's making is that there's people, uh, when people uh, decide they're going to figure out their own system of ethics, what they're going to do is they're going to eventually blow their lives up. And you don't want to be standing next to them when they do. Because following your instincts is not a good strategy for success. How many of you saw the, the newspaper article about the road rage thing in um, uh, Bayshore. Did you all see about that? Okay, I, I, I said newspaper article. It wasn't newspaper. I saw it on one of these neighborhood, you know, snoop on your neighbor's apps next door. Yeah. So so uh, some guy with a road rage thing got out got out of his car with a with a tire iron, beat up uh, uh, beat the guy's car and then uh, hit him uh, with it in the hip. So so you know that's following your own instincts, right? You cut me off. You you know I don't I don't know the circumstances. You you threw a bird at me, whatever it was, and you know instantly I see red, right? I am following my instincts, right? I am not governed by any kind of an ethical system at this point. I'm just doing what comes natural. Just like the guy in the Today Show said, you know, it's natural. And so so I'm going to do what's natural right up to the point where I'm in jail for assault. Because that's a bad idea. And he says, he says they, they bring about their own destruction. And he says, you don't want to be standing next to those people because they're going to blow up their life and you're going to get hit with the shrapnel. So... Compare the warranties. Uh, some other places. Uh, so, so what are the warranties that Christian offers? Uh, Christianity offers. Jesus says this: the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose, the thing I came to do, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And we see that in the early church. Uh, in in the um, in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says, "Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith." So, think about people: Corey Ten Boom or Martin Luther King. Uh, people, people like that, but also people you know, you know, your grandmother, somebody that you kind of wish you could be more like her. And, and he says, think about people like them, um, and follow the example of their faith. He says, Jesus Christ hasn't changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so don't be attracted by strange new ideas. So, he's saying, He's saying, compare the warranties. Um, look at God's warranty. And this, the psalmist says this, he always stands by his covenant, the com- commitment he made to a thousand generations. The fact that it's 2,000 years old should actually make it more valuable because God has been standing behind it forever. He says, uh, God says, and then, and then lastly, God says this, he says to Moses, he says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show my mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone he chooses. He says, I am God Almighty. Nothing can stop me from showing mercy and compassion to anybody I choose. So he says, that's my warranty. What's your warranty? What's, what's these, these dreamers, these people who cooked something up in their head or, or somewhere else in their body, and they decided that that's the best warranty to follow? What's, you know, how are you going to compare that to what God is offering? So, Compare the warranties. Let's pick it up again in verse 12. He says, When these people eat with you in the fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, they're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. 
I don't do boating because I'm terrified of the water if it's more than about this deep. But I can I can imagine that being a very terrifying thing is that if you have these people with you in your church, they're going to be sitting there next to you and they're going to be talking to you. And you're going to say, that sounds pretty reasonable. And the next thing you know, you're the one whose boat goes up on, on a reef. So he says they are a reef. He says they're like shameless shepherds who can only care for themselves. So you hire somebody whose specific job is to take care of the sheep. But all he's caring about is himself. The wolf comes, you know, the tiger, whatever, whatever attacks sheep in the wild, I don't know. Um, and the shepherd says, run away, right? That's the specific, you know, you had one job and you, you blew it off because you're a shameless shepherd. So he says, they don't care about the people around them. He says, they're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. You remember, you remember it back in, in June. We see the clouds go by, but there's nothing in them. So it's just, it's just hot, dry Alaska. So, he says, they're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. He's saying, I'm looking at their life and I'm saying, uh, you know, I don't think I really want to be quite like that. They seem to be enjoying themselves, but, you know, I don't think that's really what I want in my life. I don't see the fruit in their life that I would like to see in my own life. And honestly, when I look at them, I don't see them connected. They're not tapped into anything that could ever give them any fruit. So they are like trees doubly dead. He says they're like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. So, I got nothing. Um, whatever it means, you know. Um, and then they're like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. So the picture here, you know, back when, when it was dark, you know, some places it's dark and not cold at the same time. So so people who live in temperate climates, they go out in the, at night, they see there's the backdrop of stars, but sometimes there's a comet or a meteor or something, and it goes by. It's a flash in the pan. It won't be here tomorrow night, or it won't be in the same place. It's just kind of wandering around, right? I want... I want to live by something that's actually going to last. I don't want to be kind of saying, you know, YOLO, this is going to work, this is going to be awesome for the next 30 seconds. But then, you know, I'm going to flame out like a meteor or something. So so he's saying, they're like wandering stars, doomed forever to black as darkness. He says, if you want that, um, go for it, but but who really does? And so he says, he says, the people around you make a difference. They're, they're reefs, they're trees without fruit, you know, that, that, that they're not helpful to you. So our third point, surround yourself with people who want God's best for you. That, that we pick up, we pick up a culture. And so you want to, you want to make sure that there's people around you who can support you. You've probably had this circumstance, or it's, um, it's, uh, New Year's, right? And you're trying to do something and there's people who, who, they're not consciously trying to undermine you, probably, but maybe they are. They're certainly, though, they are not supporting you as you try to do the thing that you're trying to do. So, so surround yourself with people who want the best for you. Paul says about himself, he says, look, I'm not there yet. I haven't, I, the Apostle Paul, have not achieved perfection. But that's what I'm focusing on. You want people around you who say, yeah, I'm not there yet, but that's what I'm focusing on. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm pressing on to per- possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Um, in Ephesians, he says this. He says, let everything you say be good and pe- helpful because people are listening. And when you say, you know, there's no point or that person's a loser and they're never going to be any better, people hear that. So he says, let everything you say be good and helpful so your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And then in Galatians, Paul writes this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. You shouldn't stand off and say, you know, Loser. You know, instead you should see what you can do to help out. He says, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. The way you fulfill the law of Christ is not by adhering to the ethical code, but by helping people who have trouble 
with the ethical code. So surround yourself with people who want God's best for you. And then finally, let's take a look at the last part of the letter. So he says, he says, um, So a long, a long section there. I'm just going to skip over it for time. Enoch uh, condemned them. These people are grumblers and so forth. So, so what I want to do now is wrap it up with, um, with uh, verse starting in verse 17. He says, so what do we do? He's explained the problem with these people. Now, what do we do? He says, a call to remain, I'm sorry, uh, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus predicted. They told you in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life was to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. So the first thing we do is remember, this did not catch God by surprise. God's not up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, there's people who took the gospel and are twisting it into something that I never anticipated. He's saying God totally knew that this was coming and he planned for it. He gave us scriptures to help us understand that this is not a new thing. So he says, remember, this is not something that God didn't see. What else do we do? But you, dear friends, must build each other up. We already talked about that in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Align yourself with God's purposes for your life. You know, never once in, I don't know, maybe never is a long time, I cannot remember a time when I have intentionally sinned that I did not first have a thought you know, this is really not going to end well. This is not what you want to do, right? You know, the Holy Spirit has never failed me yet. But I've said, yeah, but, you know, some other time. You know, uh, my intentional sins, I, you know, I probably blunder through life sinning without realizing it. But the sins I'm aware of, the sins I know of, are ones where I consciously rejected the Holy Spirit's counsel. And he says, don't do that. He says, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit grabs you, when you feel that nudge that says, you know, don't, don't, bad idea. When you get that little <clears throat> from the Holy Spirit, pay attention to it. And he says, and then, um, await the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you'll keep yourself safe in God's love. So do those things. And then finally he says this, and this is maybe the most surprising part. You might expect the others, but he says this, and show mercy to those who are wavering. Rescue others by uh, snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their life. So, so there's somebody in my life who's saying, you know, you can still do that thing that is a struggle for you. You, you, you can still, you can still do that. And despite the fact that you, you have a sense that God is trying to grow you in, to, to be more like Christ and not do that. And they're telling you, go right ahead. What should I do with that person? He says, he says, show them mercy. Don't, not reject them, not cast them into outer darkness. He says, show them mercy. He says, who should I show mercy to? He says, the ones who are like you, the ones who are going, I don't know, that sounds actually pretty tempting, right? So show mercy to the people whose faith is wavering. But who else do I show mercy to? Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. So there's some people who've said, yeah, actually, you know, he convinced me I'm going to do it, right? So show mercy to them. But he goes on. He says, show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution. So there's some people who are actually pushing this line of thought. There's people who are telling you, no, this is, this is Christianity. This is what, what God wants for you. He says, even show mercy to them, but be careful. Do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. So he says, show mercy to everyone, but be careful. So 
We see this, this, there's nothing new about this. Jesus says, God blesses those who are merciful, they will be shown mercy. Um, uh, in Matthew, he tells the Pharisees, they come to him and say, yeah, but you can't hang out with sinners, can you? And, and Jesus says, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And then in Mark, it's actually Mark 5, there's a typo. Mark 5, Jesus has healed the Gerasene demoniac. There's a guy who's got so many uh, unclean spirits in him that he, uh, that when Jesus asks him what's his name, they answer legion. Um, there's, there's an uncountable number of unspirits in him. Jesus cast them out and the man says, man, I want to be with you. Can I, can I follow you around? And Jesus says, no. He says, instead, go home to your family and tell them how merciful uh how, how merciful the lord has done, has been uh, tell him everything the lord has done for you and how merciful he's been so he says he says that a big piece of discipleship is just telling people what god has done in your own life and then finally in luke 6 he says do not judge others you will not be judged do not condemn others or it will all come back and you forgive others you'll be forgiven given you will receive your gift will return to you in full Press down, shaken together, and make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. So he says, he says, um, to, to not judge, to not condemn, but to forgive and to give. So, uh, mercy is what Jude tells us to do, and there's nothing surprising to us because that's what we see all through the New Testament. And then he wraps it up with this great doxology, this great uh, giving glory to God. He says, now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his beyond, before all time, and in the present and before all, uh, beyond all time. He says, he says, God is able to help you. God is able to deliver you until the age to come. He says, God is able. So, glory to God. So, what do we do when discipleship is hard? It's going to be hard because you're not like Jesus, and that's where God is taking you. But you will be more like Jesus if you do what the Holy Spirit is counseling you. And for those of us who don't know your your particular struggles, it's very clear what we're, we're to do with you. We're to help build you up, and we're to show you mercy. So, discipleship is hard, but... That is not a surprise to God. If it's a surprise to you, read the neglected books, the books like Jude, because he tells us how we can get through it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we think of the the great saints uh, who did things we cannot imagine doing, but uh, sometimes even the most trivial things seem beyond us. So, Lord, we pray that you would um, you would help us to to uh, learn from the the teaching we heard today, how we can, how we can cooperate in the work you are doing of making us more like Jesus. Um, so we, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that you did, you ha- you have no peace with sin, that your only purpose was to save sinners. We pray, Lord, we, we would remember that you, you stand behind the promises you've made in the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to find and connect with people who can, who can, um, who can encourage us along the way. And finally, Lord, we remember that, um, now we remember that we play, that we play defense, uh, that, that our job is not to prosecute this battle. Uh, this is, this is, the battle is yours, um, but that we can be defenders 
by uh, doing the things that, that you've called us to do in this text. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Raise your hand and say, what was point four? <laughs> okay, play defense. Yes. All right. I was just asked, was that a sports reference? Um, it was going to be a sports reference. I asked sporty people for help, <laughs> and and it didn't. It did, nothing came of it. But uh, yeah, I played defense. So don't be a ball hog. Don't try to always score points. Okay, it's not your job to score points. Just play de- play a defense, decent defense.